April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we are joined by Ben Coleman. Ben is the founder of Reality Defender, a deepfake detection platform. And over the past 15 years, he's scaled multiple companies at the intersection of cybersecurity and data science. He's also led cybersecurity commercialization at Goldman and worked at Google. And in full disclosure, I am an investor in Reality Defender. I've been really excited to watch its progress over the past couple of years. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Zoe. Really excited to be here. So Ben, usually we start by hearing about how guests became interested in their current field of work, but this time I want to dive into a topic that is very timely. Last week, uh, as many people might have seen, a photo emerged that appeared to show that there was some sort of attack at the Pentagon, and it caused a brief market sell-off and went viral on Twitter, but it turns out it wasn't real. Ben, can you tell us more about what happened and uh, and what the fallout looked like? Yeah, and and before I get started, let me just say that it's it was a hundred percent preventable, and and we'll talk about how we can prevent it, and it it should not, and, and could not happen in the future, but it, but it does. Um, you know, at at a very high level, uh, and this is not just me preaching what we're building, but there are no current laws or regulations on any kind of generative media online. And, and unlike a computer virus or uh, CSAM imagery of underage persons, um, big companies and platforms, they put all the onus on the users to be the experts to uh, uh, flag or, or, or remove something. Imagine a world where, where Gmail said, uh, hey, Zoe, please let us know if there's a computer virus and we'll flag it and block it. That's what's happening today with generative AI-based media. There's a lot of incredibly fun, exciting use cases of generative AI, but unfortunately, there's a lot of really dangerous, scary use cases as well. Uh, and because there's no regulations and no requirement on platforms to do anything, they, they, they do nothing. And so we woke up into the morning. There was a, uh, a tweet, a post, uh, Discord and Twitter, and then RT, uh, the Russian social media platform posted it as well, of what appeared to be an explosion at one of the uh, far corners of the parking lot at the Pentagon. Um, we knew it was fake immediately. Uh, we flagged it in real time. Uh, our platform uses programmatic tools and a dozen different models to identify different types of synthetic or manipulated media. And we flagged it to the platforms themselves, but what happens when you flag a fake person or fake media on, uh, on social media or Twitter is that it goes to a human moderator who is also just not qualified to tell real versus fake. Uh, even most people, including us, can't tell the difference between most real and fake. But in this case, uh, an untrained eye could tell the difference. 
And specifically, we were able to indicate uh, that it was most likely a diffusion-based model. Uh, and a few things that look at, if you look at this uh, again, this is the photo of the explosion of the Pentagon, uh, is that the smoke particularly is overly smooth. And with diffusion models, there are less high frequencies in an image. And simple examples of high frequencies are, um, I just had a baby, my wife had a baby, I have wrinkles on my forehead, uh, or a, uh, a zebra stripes. Uh, diffusion models uh, are not good at reproducing those. Uh, so there just be less dimensionality, less high frequencies in an image. So identify that immediately. Other items are, are a little bit more uh, old school. Um, the railing is a bit inconsistent. It looks like it's floating. Uh, it's more just traditional Photoshop or uh, post-processing. Um, but again, um, it's fake. We could identify it fake. Programmatically, we could have blocked it on upload, but instead it bounced across the internet. It caused a $100 billion sell-off in the market. And this is just one simple, not that great deepfake. Uh, imagine a world where you had really great ones consistently being posted. Imagine the accounts posting them being fake as well. Imagine the comments on those posts being fake as well. And you get into a world where you're not sure who's real or who's fake or or, or what to believe. And do we have any sense for, you know, the like the origin of this or what the intent was behind on it? I mean, or intent behind it might have been, you know, like I assume, you know, if somebody wanted to trade off of this sort of information, you know, it could be used for financial reasons or to just wreak havoc. Like, do we have any insight into that sort of thing? So we, we as a company focus more on, on inference and not on intent. Um, but I think to, to your point, um, in use cases that have a uh, geopolitical and economic uh, uh, result, uh, it, it most likely is either a sale actor or a financial player as, as well. Or some kind of combination of the of the two, uh, but ultimately this is absolutely something that was uh, uh, released uh, to impact um, the United States, whether it's a government or the market in general. So backing up now, how did you first become interested in this challenge? You've been working on this a long time before most people were paying attention. Like what what inspired the original interest in this space? Originally, we, um, much like most researchers, we built something that we thought would solve everything forever. We thought we built uh, one model to rule them all for the Lord of the Rings fans uh, on, on, the, on the podcast. Um, and much like most research, it does not work in the real world. And so we had a perfect environment, you know, perfect sample media, 100% accuracy, 100% precision, 100% recall, which are just the ways to think about true positives versus false negatives. And... Uh, also for false positives. And uh, it did not work. And so we challenged ourselves on how we could make it work. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized that no single model can ever solve this, this issue. And we, we looked back to companies like Semantic and McAfee and cybersecurity, and also some of the organizations that are developing different types of uh, physical vaccines for, you know, every year guessing which flu vaccine will be the big one. And so we, we developed a methodology to create multiple independent uh, detection or inference models and then challenge ourselves to see how we put them together. And for, for any of you watching the market, you guys are all aware that I think maybe NVIDIA, are they now a trillion dollar company yesterday or today? But it's pretty high. Um, that's a huge challenge and it's, it's difficult to actually do what we do. 
uh, in the face of very expensive computational costs. And so we, on one hand, are, are working to build models with higher accuracy. Um, on the other hand, building technology that allows us to run those models in a computationally efficient way because um, ultimately, if it doesn't work financially, it doesn't work for, for users as well. Um, we, we had a few kind of very fortunate connections early on, including with you, Zoe. Um, we had people who believed in us when no one else did. Um, many folks asked us to pivot into Web3 and into NFTs and other uh, buzzy, buzzy words of the time. And, you know, I, I think uh, we're just incredibly stubborn. Um, and we believe because we can do things potentially that are, that are bad. Everyone else can do them potentially bad. And if everyone gets access to technology in an easy way, it just makes the bad things happen a lot more often. And so, uh, we've, we've been working on this for a few years and, um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to stop doing it. It's absolutely a forever challenge. Was there a certain moment or event that for you was like a red flag of like, oh, wow, people should really be focused on this challenge of deep fakes. Like, you know, maybe years before Reality Defender was born, but like, I don't know, was there something that, that for you made this feel urgent or, uh, yeah, I'm curious what, what was like the early inspiration? Sure. So when I was at Goldman Sachs, uh, I was among the, the most incredible, brilliant cybersecurity minds uh, I've ever seen. Um, I sat at a small desk outside the CIO and the CTO and the CISO's office. At the time, the CISO was Phil Venables, who now is the CISO of Google Cloud. And another gentleman was Royal Hansen, who's now the CISO of, 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 all of, of all of Alphabet. And we had an interesting challenge of um, people doing generic voice fraud and uh, well-meaning bankers, not at Goldman Sachs, but at really all banks, you know, hearing uh, perhaps billionaire Zoe say, hey, please wire money to my account and this country and I'm too busy to check my multi-factor device and bankers just making the wire transfer. And and we could not identify a great solution to solve for it using different types of PII, uh, just checking your information because it's all hackable. And so the solution we found at the time was was uh, was different kind of voice voice matching technologies. And at that time there were some emerging use cases in Hollywood of faking voices, but it hadn't got to the point that it that it does now. And from that moment, when we started using different kinds of voice matching technologies, the challenge in my head was just like, how soon will it be available to average people to fake voices? And you know, for the music fans in, in, in the audience, um, you know, Coachella was one of the first places where they faked a voice and faked the whole thing in 3D and in video on stage um, in in real time. Like, actually changing it all. And so there's been some kind of some, some, some secular tailwinds blowing around uh, computational costs literally going to zero. Anyone with a credit card could get access to Amazon. And the code being available for free, but, but even more uh, important but also scary is that unlike with a computer virus or a real virus, if you want to release them, you've got to be an expert in those fields. In this field, it's just a Google search away, you know, fake face generator, synthetic voice generator, face swap, Zoe Weinberg, LinkedIn picture, you know, 
anyone's image or asset online, our voices now, or your picture on LinkedIn can be used in a really fun and entertaining way or also an incredibly dangerous way that's only challenged by a uh, your imagination. Yeah. And I'm just curious, what do you see or what do you see as some of the legitimate use cases of deep fakes? So for example, actually, Zoe, you brought this up on our last episode. Amnesty International had used deep fake images of protests to protect the identity of protesters. And people were outraged. But, you know, we were sort of talking, you know, was this perhaps a good privacy protecting use case? So from your perspective, what are those legitimate use cases of deep fakes, whether it's on the privacy side or within broader industries like media, entertainment, gaming, et cetera? That's a really great question. Um, you know, obviously this is a tool that is that is only going to get more intertwined in our day-to-day lives. And you know, I'll just reference, if you have more than one camera on your iPhone, each time you take a photo, some of the features will take the background with one lens, the face, the foreground with another lens, and then put them together. That's using generative AI. Um, so we're all using it right now. So whether it's using your, your iPhone or perhaps using your favorite social platform and removing a mole, changing the shape of your, your chin, removing a little bit of neck fat or slimming yourself like every celebrity does, those again are all using generative AI, whether it's kind of more manually through Photoshop or clicking on social media platform, the filter that says, slim me, de-wrinkle me. You go on Zoom in the settings, there's a filter that literally removes your wrinkles. I, I, I use it exactly. all the time. <laughs> no, no comments on that. Um, so clearly, you know, this is the, this is the future. And, you know, uh, our, 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 our thinking is that there's a lot of use cases where it is new and normal. But there's a lot of use cases that are inappropriate. And for right now, our goal is only to flag both of them. The next stage is to think about the intent of it. Um, but, but right now, no one is flagging it in the first place. So that even, even that kind of minimal filter, uh, you know, when, when you go onto social media and look at um, a, a tweet of a boxing match or even football, a lot of times it is pixelated and it says, this shows violence. Um, you must be over 18 on YouTube or click here to confirm you actually want to see this. You know, so the bare minimum here is just to flag it and say, uh, Natalia, Zoe, this image uh, appears to be synthetic because a platform like Reality Defender has quantified it and actually measured it with a confidence interval, but also potentially removing it completely. Uh, for example, we can identify not only is an asset a underage person, but also it may or may not be fake. And so similar to CSAM imagery, uh, deep fakes or AI are just another spectrum of assets that, um, that really should be flagged and potentially blocked across do, the uh, are, internet. Are you saying that people, that it needs to be proactively flagged if, say, you know, Natalia is is editing her face or something like that. Like every person who's trying to enhance their appearance or use a filter or whatever, like that ultimately, you know, when they post that on Instagram, there should be a little tag that says like, this was edited. Like, is that, I guess, is that what you would advocate for? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's advocating for saying it's edited or to advocate when it's not edited, but there's certainly a future where uh, uh, viewers uh, either expect or deserve to know uh, 
the, the, the truth, you know, has this come directly from the CMOS sensor on your camera or has it gone through all kinds of post-processing? You, you choose your favorite celebrity without picking any of them. There's debates all day long if they've manipulated their imagery or not. Uh, but it's, it's a lot more personal than that. It's, uh, you know, our video conference right now, um, we can do real time fake faces that are not removing a mole or, or, or wrinkle or taking the shape of my chin, but literally me being Zoe with your voice with less than 10 seconds of your voice. I could use a totally off the shelf platform for a few dollars and make a fake you. We had an individual interview with us after 20 minutes. His voice changed, his race changed. And what we did continue him with the process is very impressive. It did cost him a few thousand dollars of cloud compute to do it. But, um, I'd say like those are the areas that we're really scared about. The areas around beautification on social media and Instagram, there will be legislation on that, but, um, that's less of a worry. Um, once we cross that, that bridge. I, I just wanted to even add, you know, before we move on to our next question is, um, I, uh, one of my friends works for a company called Descript and Descript actually ironically is used by a lot of podcasters to actually record and then synthesize and edit uh, material. And one of the um, options or features that they offer is the ability to sort of take voice clips and then go back and edit what people actually said and completely revise certain parts of the video or the podcast. And so just as you're sort of talking about those parts, it's nice because you don't have to go back and re-record the whole thing. There's so many different ways to sort of like update something. If you updated, if you said something today and, you know, four months that could be outdated, you could go back and update it. Like you could see that as being used for good or being used for efficiency. Um, but then at the same time, like that type of tool and feature could be pretty terrifying. Um, because you can kind of rewrite over what people have said in the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree on that. I, you know, I'd say that for the most part right now, since this is so early, we're focusing on like the pure play broad use cases, but more of the traditional public media use cases are, are also super, super important as, uh, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, something that I was really interested in is I've been following the metaphysics CEO, Tom Graham. He runs a company that creates authorized deep fakes of people using AI. And there was an article that recently came out at the beginning of this year saying that he'd made history as the first person to submit for copyright registration for his AI likeness with the U.S. Copyright Office. So what's the right approach to thinking through like regulating deep fakes and generative AI and how that actually might relate to identity as well. Got it. That's a, you dropped the bomb on me. That's a, that's a really big question. So for us as a company, we focus on the detection side, not the generation side. So I'll pick my words really, really carefully. Um, personally, I think the idea of, of provenance is really important. And so, you know, you asked earlier about identifying whether things uh, are, uh, are fake. And I might challenge you and say that if I, then things are, are real. Um, I think the first item is, is, is establishing, um, requirements that you have to flag when things are real or fake. The example you mentioned about the potentially putting, um, putting different sound clips together or changing what, what you've said. 
even if it's true, even if it's uh, not with any nefarious intent, just to notify the audience. But as, as far as the IP side of it is, I think we're going to see a, a lot of really exciting evolution in um, intellectual property protection laws over the next years. I know every lawyer I speak to is trying to get smart on the space because they don't actually know what's going to happen. Um, and underlying all of it is, is, is not just the question of, is the AI of somebody something that is patched into bull, uh, but which is, is definitely something that's going to be solved in some way or another uh, in, in years, but it's the initial area right now, which is all the AI we'd use needs all of our non-AI data to train it. Uh, and the fact that that is much more pure play, you know, the, the, the videos, the audio, the images of Natalia or, or Zoe or the photos on Getty images. Um, so these, these are not AI. They're just, they're just, uh, I guess I, <laughs> they're just the, the assets themselves. And, uh, uh, currently there's no like very black and white legislation regulation on what to do with that. And so before we start thinking about like, do people own or protect or can you license or not license your likeness? We first across the bridge of what about things that are not synthetic and, and can people building some of these tools use those? Uh, without licensing permission, because that's the, all the companies you mentioned without naming specific ones. That's what they're doing. They're, they're training on all of our information without any kind of, uh, approval or, or, or payment or, uh, a reference. I feel like we've been gesturing towards this a little bit, but there are obviously some big geopolitical risks related to generative AI and deep fakes. But I don't feel like we really actually step back and talk about like what those are. And, you know, obviously this is a foreign policy focused podcast. So feels worth spending some time on. Like, I guess both from what you've seen and then also what could hypothetically transpire. Um, what are, what are some of those geopolitical risks? Yeah. So I'll be careful on what I share. Uh, some of it will be public and others that I'll, I'll kind of discuss on a no names basis. Um, we support a number of, uh, of global governments. Um, uh, we support NATO itself because NATO uh, allows us to say that. They wrote a big um, the case study uh, on, on, on us, among other things. Uh, the focus areas uh, naturally right now are things like Russia-Ukraine, providing web skill scanning of potential Russian disinformation, misinformation, or just old-school propaganda. Um, for... For half a dozen global leaders or their immediate teams, in the last month or not month or so, we've done kind of more personal engagement around deepfakes targeting them, them directly. Um, and so, like again, it, it's either disinformation, misinformation, or propaganda. But then we've seen something just in the last twenty four hours of, you know, two members of the uh, potential Republican presidential candidates producing deep fakes on each other. So um, on some cases, globally, we don't know who's doing it. We can guess. Other hands, people are doing it and admitting they're doing it. Um, we're going to see a lot more of both of those, uh, unfortunately. And, and, and with the former, which is the kind of geopolitical, given you don't know who's doing it, you don't actually have the ground truths, you can't always be certain if there was a real asset uh, a real video, like what was actually really said there, it, it, unless it was synthetically generated, which we just say, you know what, this is um, 
this is you know, it's it's pixels. It's not a, a real a real voice. I feel like you know, at least in the U.S., twenty twenty four may be the year of the you know deep fake elections in in a way that um, it's much more um, sort of potent and potentially problematic than it has been in any election past. Yeah, I, I think that every next election is going to have this issue, and it kind of goes back to the need for. The, the mass market media to treat general AI as just like a potential computer virus on, on, on media. And that's ignoring the whole comment you guys mentioned about intent. But uh, if the intent is bad, it's, it's pretty obvious sometimes that these items should be um, much more quickly engaged before they uh, spread. The one thing that I was kind of interested in was understanding. So deep fakes are not just a technical challenge, but they're also a psychological one. So even if you're flagging and you're telling someone that an image is fake, a lot of people might still believe it's real. Or, you know, it, it goes back to, I think, a point you had made earlier that it gets flagged and then it goes to a human moderator and the human it's themselves might not even know, <laughs> you know, what exactly is real or not. So how do you really solve for the tension and the juxtaposition of this technical challenge that you guys are heavily focused on, but then also the psychological one that's more on the receiving end of the mass market? Yeah, I, I think the, the technical one can be solved completely programmatically in terms of you know using other solutions that do more NLP on what you're talking about or doing or saying. Uh, which they can measure the intent and then our platform measuring the, the fakeness and manipulation. And that's just around, you know, uploading an asset. You upload a video on YouTube, you see it ticking away, checking to make sure you're not using any licensable music. And, and yes, you're totally fine to do that if you have permission. Uh, we think of ours very much the same, the same model. Um, as far as the kind of longer tail of people seeing it, you're absolutely right. One hand, it takes 10 steps to flag a deepfake on LinkedIn. You know, I could say that my name is Natalia. I could say that I'm part of this, this the next in foreign policy and LinkedIn will totally let it happen. Uh, and now one thing to mention is if I use your real face, there's nothing fake about it. The account's fake, but the image isn't fake. Uh, but that'll match against a whitelist or blacklist. If it's a fake face, it'll let me do it as well. And we can flag that as, as well. But it'll stay on there because uh, if you flag it, it most likely won't be removed. Uh, statistically, when people see something that's fake, even if it's past the uncanny valley of fakeness, uh, if they see it a few times, uh, it, it, it registers and they might share it on as well. They might turn into a meme where it's uh, it's such a good fake that it's newsworthy on its on its own. I, I would say the only thing that you can do in those cases is try and grab it, flag it, block it earlier in the process, and you know. Part of our solution is that we, we don't actually recognize uh, uh, any API data. We don't recognize Natalia's face, Ben's face, Zoe's face. We just look at the asset itself and say that it's with this confidence level, uh, it is manipulated or fake in these ways. This model detected this, whether it's potentially a, a GAN-based face or a diffusion-based face. I, I might be, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit here, but you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this concept of like spoof accounts, right, where the image is real, but 
the content related to that image might be fake, right? And I think so many of us have seen this either happen in our own lives or happen to friends. And so I'm curious, you know, right now you guys are focused on a specific type of flagging, but over time, like, do you think there are going to be ways to map and track how content and information matches to visuals and how you can dissect the two or dissect the difference between yeah. the two? So, so just to unpack the, the first question, um, so <laughs> sounds like an advertisement. Today we launched a new feature um, because some of our global government clients said, even though this, this, this image is real, we want to understand it might be being used in a nefarious way. And so we're using a novel approach to perceptual hashes to say, and I'll use, use, use you as an example, Natalia. I hope it's okay. Um, this face of Natalia is real, but it's also being used in a real way on these other platforms that may indicate uh, malintent. This is so literally happening to me real time right now on Twitter. So, oh my my, okay, this is great. <laughs> okay, that's really scary. Well, we can help with that. We'll talk after the after the podcast. Um, so, we're servicing both the almost like a reverse Google image search on similar faces. Again, no PI data. We're not a uh, we're not Clearview AI. We don't record a face print, a voice print. We don't want to be a, the weakest link in the chain. You know, if you get your face hacked, you can't reset your face password. It's <laughs> you're gone. Uh, it'll be used forever. Um, so we're surfacing both similar faces online without knowing who you are or what you are, but also providing a geospatial view on a map based on either metadata or uh, potential uh, IP or, or other types of uh, packet data we can, we can, we can find. Um, now, I think that'll ha happen less and less in time as far as people using real imagery because it's very easy to check it. There's off-the-shelf technology to say, that looks like Natalia based on all the artifacts on your face and the vector, anal vector analysis. The reason why people are going to use a fake Natalia is because it will not match against, um, will not match against any of these other photos. And so, uh, previously you used real Ben, real Natalia photos, but it's very inexpensive computationally to recognize that's actually Natalia. Wow, there's, there's three Natalia accounts on LinkedIn. Well, we know at least two of them are probably fake. Um, and so we're going to start seeing more and more use of completely generated or heavily manipulated imagery. Uh, it may still look like you to the untrained eye, but it won't match against another face because there's been enough slight manipulations of different artifacts on your face, the kind of the dots and vectors you see on a, on a facial recognition uh, input. Um, and that means a lot of the optical technology is not going to work anymore because it, it's just not going to computationally recognize as, uh, as you. I want to come back to um, something that Natalia mentioned, which was, you know, this, the the psychological component here, and um, and you know, you Ben said that when people see an image over and over again, even if it initially looks fake, it does start to imprint. And I feel, I don't know, it feels to me like there's something kind of profound going on here, where like humans for centuries have relied on their eyes and what they see. And that's like in our evolutionary history. And we're now in this bizarro, I don't know if it's inflection point or what, in which like that is no longer the case. And I don't know if it's like the human brain has to be retrained or what, but like that's that feels like pretty 
profound. <laughs> Am I the only one who thinks that? I, I, I think high level, like we've seen this in recent global uh, elections, that things that are, are, are so classically obviously not real or the venue is not real or not recognizable are still shared. And so people are, are now relying more on the um, virality of something versus the actual provenance of, of something. Uh, and I, I, I don't have a solution beyond just that it, that it's surprising that it's not blocked initially. It doesn't need to be go viral to start getting attention. Uh, and going back to the computer virus example, you know, I got an email today in Gmail where it says, we block this because it has uh, ransomware or an APT or some kind of executable. You know, Google is not saying we blocked it because a million people got it. They, they, they blocked it because one person got it because I got it. And, and I think that what we're seeing in manipulative media is really the exact same, same thing. Like it should not wait until it's such a big deal that it's a news story on its own. It should be blocked immediately. People should have the expectation that if they upload something fake, it's going to be recognized. They'll be flagged for it. There's actual repercussions to do it as well. And the platforms themselves can't get behind different regulations say it's not our problem because similar to a virus in your email or an image of underage uh, uh, of children, I have, I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, um, those don't require flagging. They are automatic. And there's, there's, there's regulations that require it. The court of public opinion requires it as well. And platforms just, just want to make sure they're blocking it. And so I think there's a bit of a, a hangover now where where people aren't really catching up to the reality of items. And also perhaps media and technology are needing to get a bit closer in how they understand each other. So before we move on to our final segment, um, a last question for you, Ben, and then I don't know, maybe Natalia and I can also try to answer it too. But I'm curious, first, like what the most alarming deep fake you've seen has been? You can define that however you want. And also maybe what your what the either the funniest deep fake or your favorite deep fake. Natalia, maybe you and I can answer the last one. I don't know. Maybe do you even have a deep fake a favorite deep fake? I think I have some favorite deep fakes. But Ben, why don't you go first? I mean, I'll just say one that's that's incredibly scary because again, I, I now have uh, little people that rely on me. Um, it, at least once a week, we're we're asked to help with a potential deep fake that involves. A, a person's child or a person's grandparents uh, potentially calling saying they're in trouble and someone saying, hey, your family, your family member is safe right now, but they might not be safe later unless you, you know, Venmo me or, or wire money to a certain address. Um, that is very alarming. And that very uh, that actually just happened to my husband. Um, and then how did... How did it, it happen and really, how did it feel? Really scary. Um, you get the you usually get the call in the morning, um, at like a five a.m. You know, sometime where like you're waking up, you're not really going to be as alert, um, and you're basically told that like, you know, like I'm in the house with a gun, and and by the way, the number calling is from the actual house. So somehow they spoof, they spoof they've the been caller, able. Somehow they have linked you to that number. It's a phone number. It says your house is calling, your home is calling, standing here with a gun, going to shoot your parents. And unless you, um, you know, sell me $25,000 or something like that. Um, and so they, I mean, they have it down to a science. And to your point, an evolution of that is going to be instead of the, an, a, 
a third party person being on the phone, it's going to be your mom or your dad saying, please Venmo right now because I'm in trouble. Um, And it was quite alarming. I mean, it really sends you into a little bit of like a, you know. So what's, what's, what's really, what's even makes it even more alarming is that from our personal experience of being kind of the the emergency call of, of, can we help or whether it's a voicemail or recording online, which also happens as well, is that a lot of times people are almost certain it's not true. But like, what if that 1% chance it's true? You know, you don't have a thousand chances here. You have one chance and you can't do statistics and say, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a point zero 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 one chance. This is a problem. Uh, it's your, your loved one and, and you just do it. And then it's, uh, and then it's too late. And, and again, going back to my original comment about the technical requirements there, you're not dealing with, you know, s- super cyber criminals. You're dealing with average people. We went on Google, checked one of the first five or ten pages, found a voice replication platform, went on Facebook or, or YouTube or Snapchat, grabbed enough of a voice. You only need ten seconds of clean audio to do this, and and they made it. And if that happens to people like you know you 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 and us, we're probably much nerdier than the average person. I mean, what are the chances for our parents or grandparents? My grandparents password is literally you know my birthday or it's not that for the listeners but it's something similar to that and so the the, the challenge is if for you know technical people in the field who are experts in technology and foreign policy uh if it's affecting us you know the rest of the world just stands stands no chance and imagine a world where the night before an election things like this happen about an election the night before a announcement for earnings that happens the night before, you know, a ceasefire, it happens as, as, as well. And, and to, to your point also on what if it's not a good deep fake, speaking about potential ceasefires, the, the, the Zelensky video, President Zelensky of Ukraine providing his unconditional surrender to Putin was not even a deep fake. We, we, we call it a cheap fake. It was a uh, such incredibly poor quality. So obviously fake, still shared, still believed by a large subsection of people. I mean, I, I, it almost feels inappropriate now to ask, but like, do you have a favorite deepfake? Favorite deepfake? Um, it could be some of the you know, grimes, we, you know, people who've done, uh, you know, yeah. different takes on her voice. I, I, I mean, Grimes did say that she allows people to use her voice. And I think she mentioned she's willing to license it for 50% of the revenue. But on our side, on her deepfakes, the ones we make in real time to really give that visceral reaction to how scary it is. And so, you know, just this, this week, I was in Washington, D.C., you know, engaging our elected officials on what we believe is the number one cyber risk for, for, for every generation. And, you know, the initial response is, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then we say, can you stay still? We take a photo. We make a deep fake. We make them say something. And the, the jaws just drop. And we get a little in trouble for it. We were, you know, almost escorted out of the State Department. But we also were able to get these people to feel how dangerous it is, like the feeling Natalia you felt, or your your husband felt. Like that feeling is 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 unfortunately the only way to actually see how how scary this is. You don't get that feeling when your email is hacked, or your social media is hacked, or your bank account is hacked because they fix it. They reset your password. 
but but in this space it is uh, such an incredibly existential risk and we, we just can't wait for for our, our companies our elected officials to 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 wake up to it we have to really take action right now and part of what we're doing with our company is trying to figure out how to give it away at scale like we 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 lead a nonprofit called Deep Trust Alliance, a 501c6. We're trying to figure out if we could get someone or an organization to donate cloud GPUs. We, we will offer our solution as a zero, zero cost, <clears throat> zero cost Chrome plugin. Um, but it still requires the, the computation. And yet it's, uh, it's, it's, the problem is, is, is growing. Thanks. Um, why don't we shift to our final segment? Unless Natalia, do you have a favorite day break? No, I don't have a favorite deep fake, but um, what I was thinking, and you said Grimes, and then, you know, Ben was sort of mentioning, you know, with even 10 seconds of voice text, you know, you can kind of replicate someone's voice, that almost I want to dive into this, like, world of, like, monetization and deep fakes. So if you can, you know, if you can do what we talked about with, like, CEO Tom Graham did with his like AI likeness and if you are doing what Grimes did or maybe even other singers are doing with saying hey like I'll license out my voice but 50% of the revenue like how that could be really interesting that these deep fakes can become accessible as a way for monetization for people like it's a whole you know personalized yeah. business that is you know within your jurisdiction to control so don't have a favorite I mean, deep fake but you just sent me into a little bit of a <laughs> You know, just a thinking spiral on monetization as it's really. Yeah, that. I mean, we we saw the announcement this week that now the new uh, iOS update will allow you to create a a voice deepfake to respond for you. So when, you know, when Ben calls you, Zoe's like, "Oh no, another Ben call." Hey Ben, can't chat right now. I'm really busy, and it'll be a it'll be a deepfake. So uh, so to your to all your points that like there's a ton of completely legitimate above board ways to do this instead of saying, "Sorry, can't chat right now," using the button, it'll just actually be a voice doing it. Um, there are so many fascinating ways to do good things with generative AI. And the only takeaway I want to leave everyone with is that as long as you disclose that it's fake, it's totally fine because you're probably doing nothing wrong. But if you preclude the requirement to flag it as deep fake, it becomes a massive spectrum of trying to analyze all kinds of different strange intent there. And by trying to analyze intent, you get into a whole world of other uncertainties that become more of a debate when it, it really should just be black and white. Whether I mean, it's no, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, it, you know, it strikes me that, like, in fact, being able to have, you know, trust, you know, trusted verification actually unlocks the possibility to have much more creative work be produced that is made by generative AI and to celebrate that, right? And to think it's funny and creative and whatever, because we're not, we know we can differentiate because we have, you know, companies like Reality Defender or there's a watermarking system or whatever. And that actually like paves the way for a lot of innovation. I mean, I, <laughs> the favorite deep fake I was going to bring up <laughs> is the SNL ad uh, that was like a fake political ad for Biden and it's hilarious. It's so funny. And yes, at the very end, they're like, and this is an AI generated voice, right? But um, but that didn't take away from the humor. And in fact, it would have been much more, you know, perplexing or disturbing if they had tried to pass it off as real or not posted it as SNL or whatever. But like, to me, that was 
you know, I mean, we can debate whether or not it's like a good or bad use of generative AI, but like, you know, I think there is a lot to be said for using it in entertainment and for art and for creativity. And I would like to be able to see artists and individuals experiment with that and be able to do it in a way that feels that feels safe and where they know that the public will understand what it is that they're doing, right? I, I think you made a really, really important comment there, which is that is that where this is going, people are okay and will be okay with knowing that it's synthetic generated. And and my only comment is just to just to let them know, give them the option of of of, of being able to share that it is indeed fake, uh, because that solves a lot of the challenges and problems of, of potential um, malintent. Yep. So with that, let's shift to our final segment where we each share something that we are following right now. Could be in the news, media, etc. Um, I'm happy to go first. Uh, last week, a very highly anticipated documentary was released called Bama Rush, which follows uh, some young women as they are rushing sororities at the University of Alabama. Bama Rush went very viral on TikTok a couple of years ago. Um, and then there, it, the whole sort of documentary became sort of a meta story um, about the controversy of a documentary being filmed. Um you know, I think some people are saying it's anticlimactic or it's, you know, the documentary isn't what they hoped, but I found it to be a pretty interesting portrait of what it's like to be, you know, an 18 or 19 year old woman in the U.S. Uh, in 2022 or 2023. And so um would recommend that folks watch it. Natalia, what are you following right now? So I am following what I like to call the reemergence of WorldCoin, which if for those of you guys that don't know, it's co-founded by Sam Altman. Um, and I'm personally obsessed with the movement towards self-sovereign identity. And so when WorldCoin first launched, I was all over it, but it was highly criticized for being a little bit of like big brother-ish um, by the media. And now they have a huge tailwind given Altman's success with OpenAI. And so basically what they're doing at WorldCoin is they're scanning irises or biometrics with what they have like hardware called the orb as a way to verify that people are real. Um, and it's sort of a movement to give people self-custody ownership of their own identity and helping them preserve that identity. It's just, I find heavily ironic because the reemergence of WorldCoin has come on the heels of people needing to verify if someone is real in the age of AI, and Sam Altman is also involved with OpenAI. <laughs> so it's just it's just ironic that you know they launched this, OpenAI comes out, it's had a huge tailwind behind it, and now you know WorldCoin all of a sudden is back in the forefront and center of that. Um, and you know maybe he's a business genius, but I have just been reading up on it. I mean, one of my favorite, I mean, this kind of goes to what we were chatting about earlier, Ben, is um, this investor who had clearly passed on WorldCoin originally, um, released a statement being like, now after hundreds and hundreds of hours of re-reviewing re the company, you know, we feel like this is an excellent, um, you know, investment and, you know, something we're dedicated to. And so just really funny how, you know, people come back full, full, so people come back full circle into, um, in, into that. So yeah, the world always moves and moves. In cycles, I know, I know. Sure. Um, I, um, ben, what are you, what are you following? Yeah. So not to get super meta because clearly I think about this all day, but I was thinking about it at night. Uh, I'm super excited for the new 
season of Black Mirror. Um, I have no inside information on what it's going to be, but I'm certain it's going to take the kind of most exciting parts of this call and personify them on TV um, in a way that makes us think differently about the future and about media and about security and about identity. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, follow Natalia at Natalia Tucker, and you can follow Reality Defender at Detect Deep Fakes. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and you want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.